Man, I can't wait to be in heaven whenever all nations will be praising God together and all languages represented around the throne of God singing one language of worship together. And I think we got a little bit of a glimpse of that just now. If you have your Bibles, open them up, turn them on to John chapter 12. John chapter 12. Uh, This time of year, we have a lot of guests that come into our services. And you know what the number one question that we get asked by newcomers is here at Murphy Road. Now, the number one question that we get asked is, is Lash your real name? That's the number one question we get asked. And so every now and then, I just like to clear that up and say, yes, Lash is my real name. It's short for Lashley. And uh, my, my great-grandmother, that was her maiden name, and so it was given to my grandfather and then given to me. And if you knew me before the age of 18, you probably know me as Lashley. Whenever I got to about age 18, I started getting phone calls, and I would hear on the other end, uh, this is so-and-so with some company or whatever, I'm looking for Lashley Banks, is she in? And so, uh, you know, that always makes you feel a little awkward. So, uh, you know, I realized at that point that people couldn't tell if I was a girl or a boy, so I, I shortened it to Lash, and that, that solved the gender problem, but it didn't solve the problem completely because now if I'm scheduling an appointment or something like that, and I say, uh, uh, my name is is Lash Banks. Uh, they're, they're, they're picturing, you know, a rocker, a biker, you know, in their mind, they're imaging, you know, tattoos all over me and stuff like that. And, uh, and then I show up and they're like, you're just a Baptist preacher. You know, you don't, I get, I get you don't fit your name sometimes along, along the way. And so what, what I've discovered is that just through your name, people begin to develop this image in their mind as to who you are, and, and we use our imaginations. Imagination is a wonderful thing. I have a son, Bennett, who is going to turn two this week. Can you believe that? And, and he is in everything is a sword sage right now. And so it doesn't matter what he has, it turns into a sword, and he's learning to use his imagination. Now, as we grow older and, and we become adults, uh, hopefully not too many of you play dress up anymore or uh, run around turning any, everything into a sword or something like that, but we still use our imaginations, but it becomes a little bit more sophisticated. Our imaginations are how, how we view the world. It's sometimes how we put things in perspective, and we often have a worldview, and we try to imagine everything so that it becomes consistent with our worldview, but now we run into problems when we live in this imaginary world that differs greatly from the real world, and we run into problems spiritually when we begin to develop this image of this is who we think God should be, this is what we think about God, and that differs from who God really is and what the Scriptures really teach us about God. Well, this is Palm Sunday. And for centuries, people looked forward to the coming of the Messiah, the Anointed One, the Christ, who would, who would change everything for them. Uh, Isaiah predicted the coming of the Messiah. In fact, one of the greatest arguments for the veracity of Scripture is the incredible coherency that you see from Genesis to Revelation. And it, it drips with spirituality as, as the prophets centuries before Jesus predicted things about Jesus' life. Well, Isaiah predicted the birth of Jesus. In Isaiah chapter 9 and verse 6, he said, For a child 
will be born for us, a son will be given to us, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be named Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, and Prince of Peace. Zechariah, the prophet, predicted Palm Sunday, the triumphant entry. In chapter 9 and verse 9, he said, Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion, shout in triumph, daughter Jerusalem, look, your king is coming to you. He is righteous and victorious, humble, and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. David foretold of the crucifixion of Jesus in the 22nd Psalm. David says, For dogs have surrounded me, a gang of evildoers has closed in on me. They pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. People look and stare at me. They divided my garments among themselves, and they cast lots for my clothing. In each of those prophecies, the New Testament looks back to the Old Testament and says, this was predicting what Jesus would do and who Jesus would be. Joel, the prophet, foretold of the day of Pentecost, the day where the Holy Spirit came down upon the new believers in Joel chapter 2 and verse 28. He said, I will pour out my spirit on all people, referring to the coming Messiah. And then at the end of the section in verse 32, Joel wrote that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. There was a prophet by the name of Jeremiah who foretold the coming of a Messiah who would have a mission that he would change the hearts of people. And so in Jeremiah chapter 31, uh, he talks about the new covenant. And in this new covenant between God and his people, uh, God's children would receive a new heart and they would also receive forgiveness of sins that would last forever. All these prophecies occurred centuries before Jesus was ever born. And if you look at the scope of Scripture, you begin to discover that what God was doing through Jesus was huge. The mission, the intent that God had through the life of Jesus had a massive scope that would reach every man, woman, boy and girl that would transcend language, culture, geography, that would do more than just solve our temporary earthly problems, but the mission of God would reach into the heart and it would transform the the heart, the soul of humankind. And yet so many people in Jesus' day missed it, and here's why they missed it. They missed it because they had a small, contained understanding of what the Messiah was would do and who the Messiah was. And I think sometimes that happens to us today, that God desires to do great things in the world, uh, in our community, in homes, in our schools. Uh, God desires to do great things, and yet sometimes we miss it because our understanding and our image of who God is and what He is going to do is so small. Disaster occurs spiritually. When the God that you imagine in your mind, the God that you have created, is different than the God that has been revealed to us in Scripture. One of the great things about God is He's not a detached deity. We are not deist. God did not create the world and then say, good luck with that. Instead, God has chosen to reveal Himself to us uh, through the pages of Scripture and in His creation. We'll talk a little bit more about that later on. But let me illustrate this, how sometimes people uh, live in this image, imaginary 
view of God instead of really embracing who God really is by looking at a passage of Scripture that is the Palm Sunday passage. In John chapter 12 and verse 12, the Bible reads this way, The next day, when the large crowd that had come to the festival heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, they took palm branches and went out to meet Him. And they kept shouting, Hosanna! He who comes in the name of the Lord is the Blessed One, the King of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written. And he's quoting back to Joel now. Fear no more, daughter Zion. Look, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first. However, when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and that they had done these things to him. Meanwhile, the crowd, which had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead, continued to testify. And this is also why the crowd met him, because they heard he had done this sign. And then the Pharisees, the Pharisees were the religious leaders. The Pharisees said to one another, you see, you've accomplished nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. Now, picture the Palm Sunday scene. Jesus is riding down the the western slopes of the Mount of Olives. Now, as he rides this donkey, he's going past caravans of people that were likely traveling, for the most part, on foot because they were coming to the Passover feast there in Jerusalem. Historians tell us that as many as 2.5 million people would converge on Jerusalem during the Passover week. It was a massive celebration of their liberation from slavery back when they were in Egypt. And so they would camp all around the city. It was just a a week-long party in a lot of ways. So Jesus is going down the hillside. He's passing all these caravans. Now, in the Old Testament, uh, this is the fulfillment, I should say, of that Old Testament prophecy where the Messiah was going to come to Jerusalem to save his people. And so the people who imagined their Messiah to be much like Moses He would liberate them from Roman domination. He would be a great king. Whenever they saw Jesus come, they began to say, okay, if he's the Messiah, here comes the king. And some of them were probably able to put together the prophecy of Zechariah. And in their mind, they conceived that the the king would come and that he would free them from the Roman Empire. They would become dominant within the world Uh, as people they would be wealthier they would be healthier they would be happier these were individuals that lived a hard life they struggled just to eat and so they had conceived an image of the messiah that would bring them hope within their life and so from this imagination that the people had, they began to create a scene that in some ways differed from reality. In the ancient world, when a general would return to the city or when a conquering king would return to the city, they would hold what was called a triumph. They would welcome them back into the streets and the people would line the streets welcoming the great conqueror back to the community. And so when Jesus entered the city, the people organized kind of an impromptu triumph. 
and they lined the streets and they took palm branches and they put them out in front of them and they, and they were cheering and, and, you know, in my modern mindset, I, you know, they're cheering and confetti's falling from the houses and we are the champions is playing on all the radios and, you know, it's just this massive celebration. And as Jesus comes in, they're crying out, Hosanna. And Hosanna literally means Savior. So they're saying, here comes our King. Here comes the one that will save us. Here comes the one that we have been waiting for for years and years. Now, in verse 16, it says, even the disciples did not quite get it. They, they, they didn't understand that the whole scene had been prophesied about in the Old Testament, and they also didn't understand yet that Jesus had much larger aspirations than just being a political king. Now fast forward to the end of the week. Did Jesus become a king? Answer is yes. But the reality of Jesus' kingship was totally different than what the people had imagined. Instead of a golden crown... Jesus would wear a crown of thorns. Instead of political salvation, Jesus would bring spiritual salvation. Instead of immediate glorification, Jesus would endure unimaginable humiliation. Instead of just bringing new life here, Jesus would bring eternal life in heaven. The imaginary image of what God was supposed to do was different than the real image of what God did. And many of the people struggled to move beyond what they thought God should be and embrace who God is. Well, a couple days ago, Stacy and I enjoyed a date night. Now, whenever you have three small kids in the house, you don't really get to enjoy too many date nights. You know, one of the things we've learned about going from two to three, at two, it's a little easier to find babysitters. You get to three, you know, that's kind of overwhelming to folks, you know. That's right. We've got, we got a babysitter right back there. I see that hand. I see another hand. All right. Okay. But anyway, we had, we had date night. And so, uh, you know, that's a great opportunity to catch up on conversation. And so we decided to go see a movie. So, uh, so, uh, so we went to go see McFarlane, USA, and I, I like to run, and so, you know, the movie, uh, I thought it would be a cool, cool movie to go see, and, and so we, we went, it was a good story, it was about a, a coach who moved to McFarlane uh, in California, and he took some, some poor kids, and he turned them into some uh, successful runners, and it was a heartwarming kind of sports high school turnaround story. Well, in the trailer for the movie, it said, based on a true story, you know? And so after the movie, what do you do when you go to one of those movies based on a true story? You get out your phone and you start investigating how much of a true story was this really? And what we discovered whenever we investigated it was it, would really, it was really more kind of, sort of, based on a true story. I mean, there were true story elements, but they had also changed a lot of the story in order to make it more watchable and make it more enjoyable. And I find that this happens sometimes in Christianity. We change the story a little bit in order to make God more like we think he should be. We change the story in order to make it a little bit more watchable. Now this is key to your understanding of Christianity is that God has revealed himself to us. 
God is not just cloaked as a detached deity, a spiritual force, but he's revealed himself to us. How has God revealed himself to us? Well, we see God in the pages of Scripture. And certainly whenever he sends Jesus, when he sends Jesus, he says, okay, beyond words, this is who I am. Uh, Jesus said, whenever you see me, you've seen the Father. And so literally I I personify God. Uh, God and the Father, we, we are one. And so God has gone out of his way to reveal himself to us so that our knowledge of him isn't just what we conceive it to be, but our knowledge of him is based on a true story. Now, certainly there are things about God that we can't comprehend. Deuteronomy 29, 29 talks about the secret things belong to the Lord. And if you can understand everything there is to understand about God, what kind of God do you really have? He's pretty small and contained, isn't he? So there's things about God that we don't understand, but the story of God as we see it in Scripture is a true story, and so we have a true picture of this is who God is. Now, in the Big Ten, the Ten Commandments, the second commandment talks about do not fashion idols for yourself. And so we often envision that as statues. I'm not supposed to uh, fashion a statue and worship that or in coupling it with the first commandment, have no other gods before me, uh, we think, okay, I'm not supposed to worship the sun or the moon or the stars. I'm only supposed to worship God. And so not many of us have statues in our living rooms. But there is a subtle form of idolatry that can creep into our worship, and that is when we worship the God that we imagine or that we fashion in our minds instead of worshiping the true God that has been revealed to us in Scripture. Now, we all struggle with this at some point. All of us struggle with this tension between, okay, this is who I want God to be, and this is who God is. I have a customized image of who God is or who God should be. In my customized image of God, he will always make sure that my family is safe, never in danger, and my kids are always healthy. In my customized image of God, he will never expect me to be patient, right? Everything will be instant. In my customized image of God, he will, he will make all the junk food that tastes good, good for me, right? And all that food that is good for me but doesn't taste good, he'll turn all that into junk food. Uh, In my customized understanding of God, God is intensely interested in making sure that my one-year-old gets plenty of Easter eggs today and is not ran over by your three-year-old, okay? In my, in my view, that, that's kind of how God should be, uh, but, but, but that imaginary view is not the way that God shows himself on the pages of Scripture. Now, here's the tragedy of the story that we're looking at today. The Bible had described who the Messiah would be. And for generations, people had waited. People lived their entire lives waiting for the Messiah to come. And now here was the moment of truth. And these people were lucky enough to be alive when Jesus comes riding down the Mount of Olives into Jerusalem. They are there in that moment of eternity. Their grandparents, their parents had lived their entire lives waiting for that moment. And then when it was upon them, they missed it. Because they were so busy worshiping a customized God that they had developed in their mind instead of worshiping the true God that was right in front of them. 
The reality is, is that we often do that ourselves. What are some of the false images that we have of God? Well, some of us view God as the grandpa God. God's a nice old man, benign, forgiving, wears cardigans. Whenever you mess up, he puts his arm around you and gives you a Werther's. Get back on out there, son, and do better next time, right? Some of us have the lottery view of God that he exists for our health and wealth, and, you know, he just kind of makes it rain with money, and that's who God's all about. Some of us have the image of God as the man upstairs. He's your buddy who lives in the apartment above the garage. And when you get in trouble, you send up a flare prayer, and he swoops down, and and he saves you. Uh, Some of us have the radar gun view of God. God basically hangs out in the parking lot at Murphy Road Baptist Church waiting for you to drive 46 and a 40 going down Murphy Road so he can pull out and give you a ticket. And God spends all this time sitting on his throne waiting for you to mess up so he can strike you down. Some folks have the politic view of God, that God's highest priority in life is to make sure that the people that you want to be elected are elected. And that's what worship of God is all about, is just getting people elected. Some people have the commentary view of God, that instead of reading the pages of Scripture and letting Scripture speak for itself, uh, you read blogs, you read Christian books, you read commentaries, and then you, you, you kind of pour the Scriptures into those blogs. It is critical not to teach, foster, model imaginary images of God. And as a pastor, uh, I see marriages ruined. I see bankruptcies. I see angry homes, judgmental spirits, disillusioned people, apathetic, numb Christians, all because they had fostered a false image of God. The people of Jesus' time imagined Jesus to be an earthly king. He would be the second coming of Moses. He would liberate them from slavery. And whenever he failed to live up to their image, they killed him. And the reality is is that he is the king of kings. He is the great liberator. He delivers our soul from bondage. He is the Hosanna. He is the Savior, bringing forgiveness to our past and purpose to our present and hope to our future And he transforms life in every way, soaring beyond mere behavioral codes, going into heart transformation. And he changes things from within the soul. But they were stuck. They were stuck in this false image of who God's supposed to be. And they miss it. When you're stuck in your imaginary image of what God should be and do, You miss out on what he's really doing. The reality is, is that God's bigger than me. I can't trap him into my false image. I can't contain him. I won't ever understand everything that there is to understand about him. The reality is, is that God has gone out of his way not to be a detached deity, that God loves us so much that He sent His Son so that we might see Him in action and understand this is the true story. This is the image of God. God has redeemed us in Christ so that we might be His for all eternity. Let me tell you quickly about the, the biggest false image that people carry around about God, and that is the false image of the scales. And here's how it goes. 
If I do, whenever I get to the pearly gates and I stand in front of the Apostle Peter, he's going to look and see how well did I follow the golden rule. And if I did more good than bad, then God's going to let me into heaven because even though I did these things over here that were bad, I did more good than bad. And if, whoops, the other way, then I'm in trouble. And people carry around these, this false image of the God of the scales when the Scriptures reveal to us a God of grace that doesn't just bring you the scales of fairness, but God brings to you an unmerited love that is found in His Son Christ, that God does for you and for me what we never deserve, and that He lives the life that we couldn't live. He dies on the cross for our sins. He absorbs the wrath of the just Heavenly Father intended upon sin. He absorbs that. He takes on death. He overcomes death. And the Scriptures say that all who believe in him are seen in him by God so that God no longer sees me apart from Christ he sees me in Christ and I am his dearly loved child and I don't live with a he loves me he loves me not theology in which it's based upon how good I can be but I understand that nothing can separate me from the love of God because the love of God is extended to me in Christ Jesus. I didn't deserve that love. In His grace, He extended that love to me. And because of that, I live in that love as a forgiven person. And I serve because I am, not in order to be. Because I am loved, because I am forgiven, because I am God's, then I live my life as an act of gratitude and I serve others others and I try to get beyond myself and live life in a selfless fashion instead of a selfish fashion because God has loved me in a selfless fashion in sending his son and my life can be a part of the story of God whenever I join him in my work and in in his work and I get beyond that simple small mindset that I think this is God and he just exists for me and I realize that God is doing things globally and God is transforming cities and God is transforming hearts and and God is healing marriages and God God is is raising up generations that will love him and passionately share his love, not just here but around the world and God is planting new churches in places like Toronto and God is doing things that I cannot even imagine and God forbid that we should contain him to our simple imaginations instead of letting God be God. I challenge you not to miss out on what God is doing because you're simply trying to contain him to what you think he should be. His love for you is deeper than anything you can imagine. And his grace is broader than anything you can imagine. And his goodness is more amazing than anything you can imagine. And his plan for you and for your life is brighter than anything that you can conceive. God is so much bigger than anything that you can develop. And his grace, his love, and his mercy, these are the goodness and the delights of life. So swim in them. Live in them. God can use your life in ways that you could never imagine, small and large, whenever you give the totality of your life to Him and you worship Him as the Hosanna, as the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the Savior who died so that your heart might be transformed and so that your life can truly live with eternity in mind. 
Would you be so kind as to stand with me, please, as we come to a time of commitment? The band's going to come, and they're going to lead us in, in singing. And during that time, you may desire to pray. You, you may desire to pray with somebody. You can sing with the band. I'm here at the front. If I can pray with you about anything, it's always my delight to do so. Uh, it may be that today, for the first time, you, you really feel the need. The Holy Spirit has shown you the need to embrace Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. And so I invite you right now, if, if that's where you are, I invite you to call out to God. You might say something like, Heavenly Father, I'm a sinner and I need a Savior and I embrace Jesus. I embrace Him as my Savior and my Lord. I ask for forgiveness of my sin. I ask that you will shine your light into my life. And Lord, I desire to abide in your love forever. I want to follow you. I want to be a follower of Jesus Christ, the one who loved me, the one who died for me. And if that's where you are today, if today is your day of salvation, I encourage you to mark this moment. This is the moment when you gave your heart to Christ. This is the moment when all things became new and you started living your life following after the true, real God. Please let me know. Let me know that you made this decision. Let people in your life that walk with God know that you made the decision because we want to celebrate with you. Father, I thank you for who you are and I pray that we might worship you as you are. It's in Jesus' name.